Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, the host of Memphis Metropolis. This week, my guest is Andrew Guthrie, who is assistant professor in the city and regional planning department of the University of Memphis, a colleague actually of Charlie Santo, who's one of the regular commentators on this program. And this week, we're going to be talking about some research that Andrew and his students are doing on something called land installment contracts. So we're going to be explaining what that is in a minute. But first of all, um, Andrew, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Emily. Um, And uh, one thing I should point out, uh, this is not actually a student project. Uh, This is a project um, project. uh, led by myself and two other faculty members, uh, Dr. Catherine Lambert-Pennington, who's the director of the School of Urban Affairs and Public Policy, and Dr. Courtney Melton-Font, uh, who is a professor in the uh, uh, public health uh, department. Okay. So within the city and regional planning department, what's your, what's your specialty? I mean, is it you know, land use planning is probably not transportation. Maybe it is, but I know that that uh, different faculty kind of cover different portfolios in that department. So, what's yours? Well, it's funny you say that. It actually is transportation. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, I originally um, back um, oh you know back uh, almost decades ago when I started. Uh, 2007, but you know, you get the idea. When I started um, my planning uh, education, uh, started my master's degree in a similar program to what we teach here, um, I actually was straight down the line transportation focused. Uh, I was very much that way till about halfway through um, my PhD, at which point I got more and more interested in uh, housing via research on transit oriented development. Okay. Is, uh, that what, is that what your dissertation was about? It was, yes. Um, and <laughs> since then, I've had, or, uh, since moving to Memphis, um, I've been oh, almost equally transportation and housing, I would okay. say. Okay, great. Well, I'm, on the, I'm a graduate of the program, and you probably maybe you didn't know that, and um, long before you arrived... And there actually wasn't a, um, weren't many housing courses or transportation courses for that matter. So I'm glad to see that that's been bolstered since I was there. So let's let's talk about land installment contracts. So this is a term that probably most people aren't going to be familiar with, even people that know something about uh, the affordable housing arena. So let's just start off talking about what land installment contracts are. Can you help with that? Sure. So a land installment contract um, uh, also in uh, known more or less as a contract for deed um, in some cases is uh, is is it, it is essentially a rent to own um, housing uh, 
sale model, home sale model. Um, the critical features of it, though, is that are that one, it is um, it's considered owner financed uh, because there's no bank involved. Uh, the the property owner, or the seller, um, uh, holds title uh, to the home uh, throughout the whole term uh, of the payoff, um, and it, it it's it's essentially just it, it's essentially a rental with a with a contract behind it um, that stipulates that after a certain period of paying these installments, um, the house will belong to the tenant. Okay. Um, well, and I know, and I know people people have heard of you know so called lease purchase programs is, and maybe that's never maybe that has never been an official housing market designation. But is there any difference between land installment contracts and what we think of as lease purchase? Sure. So a lease purchase agreement um, is it's essentially uh, a conventional sale that follows uh, a, a sort of short period of renting the property, usually one to three years. Uh, there is an agreement up front uh, that um, the uh, purchaser slash tenant uh, will purchase the property at the end of that rental period and that they will line up bank financing okay. during that time. Okay. Usually also some of the rent goes to the down payment. Okay. So, okay. So in other words, there's and just you've, you said it's just sort of restate in the land installment contract or rent to own, basically the seller is financing the deal. And in a, le- in a traditional lease purchase, at some point after the leasing period is over, there's a bank involved that's actually going to put, put uh, going to provide the mortgage financing. Exactly. And at the point that, that, that the sale occurs and the bank becomes involved, uh, after that, it's just a conventional sale. It's, it's a mortgage. Okay. Um, so, so how did you get interested in this as a research topic? A few reasons. One, I'm, I'm interested in housing research in general. All of my research has a strong social equity focus. Uh, and uh, housing uh, inequality is one of the major planning issues in Memphis. We have one of the worst uh, eviction rates in the country. At times, we've had the worst uh, we have, um, uh, but, uh, uh, well, uh, sorry, uh, we have, um, uh, you know, uh, our, our neighborhoods that are suffering from large numbers of vacant properties, but at the same time, uh, large percentages of Memphians paying, you know, 30, 35, 40, 50% of their income in rent, uh, even so. Um, so, uh, this is clearly um, well. I, I, I guess if you add all that to the way that uh, the foreclosure crisis, kind of bringing in some recent uh, history, uh, just devastated uh, a number uh, of Memphis neighborhoods, and also really kind of uh, fundamentally changed uh, the picture of housing tenure uh, in Memphis. Uh, we had a significant shift from. Uh, you know, owners to renters, and it's it's trending uh, towards um, you know fewer Memphians uh, owning their own homes and more uh, Memphians you know, paying uh, every month essentially to you know um, 
uh, usually fund the mortgage on someone else's home, essentially. So, um, yeah, and I, and I want to talk a little bit more about those sort of trends that we've been seeing in a minute. But um, so what's the, is there like an overarching research? I know you, the, the research part is um, you're fairly early in the process, although it's such a timely topic. That's why I wanted to have you on. But is there, what's the, que- what's the overarching research question you're trying to answer? Sure. Um, and I guess if I could add a little bit to my last uh, sure. answer, sorry. Um, basically, we've had anecdotal uh, evidence, at least, that we're starting to see uh, large corporate investors uh, get interested in land in, in home sales through land installment contracts. Um, in some cases, th- these are well. In a lot of cases, these are uh, private equity firms that are you know buying up um, usually distressed properties, foreclosures. Uh, in cash sales for you know very very low prices you know twenty thousand thirty thousand dollars for a single family home and uh, you know it's it, on some level trying to uh, resell these through land installment contracts um, sort of the tricky bit is that uh, land installment contracts don't directly create uh, any public data until, or at least don't necessarily create any public data in Tennessee until the term is up and the actual, um, you know, transfer of the title goes through. Um, So it's both, on the one hand, we have anecdotal evidence that um, these are becoming, um, well, these are being pushed by, um, you know, large corporate investors in the Memphis area, but on the other, we don't have... Uh, a good way to tell through kind of conventional means uh, how prevalent they are. So I guess I see what you're saying. Cause like in a, um, I mean, it sounds like this is, you know, a predatory product, like a lot of, you know, what we think of as predatory lending and, you know, but a lot of predatory lending, you know, there is a mortgage recorded um, and you do have some information right. that's reported about the amount of the loan, potentially the interest rate, the points, all of those, not always, but a lot of times. So you can actually look at the look at the agreements and see, but it sounds like a lot of times, and I want to talk about what's, you know, what's so bad about these, but a lot of times what you're saying is they don't, um, it never gets to the point of a sale. So there's no recording of the transaction and so you don't really so so you trying to sort of is your goal to sort of try to um figure out the extent of the problem in spite of this uh lack of good data i'm obviously simplifying um (laughs) i'm sure but i'm just trying to understand what you're what you're trying to what you're trying to find out sure that that's part of it i would say um that is um there there's sort of two uh, tax that we're taking on this, um, and they're 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 interrelated and they're they're kind of constantly feeding into each other. I would say uh, the one is uh, what you just said, uh, trying to come up with some way to uh, estimate how prevalent these uh, you know, these land installment contracts are likely to be, kind of neighborhood by neighborhood, so we know. Uh, where to kind of go looking for people to interview uh, to uh, you know, conduct our other research task, 
which is uh, qualitative interviewing, uh, talking to people who are either currently um, buying a home through land installment contracts or people uh, who have either completed a sale that way or who have um, uh, attempted to buy a home that way and been evicted. So what and that is to sort of see what uh, you know what the experience of buying a, of, of trying to buy a home that way at least is, and you know what the effects on um, people's lives are. So so talk a little bit about what a typical I don't want to say a deal or a, I mean how does that how does this whole project work? Do um, are these you know advertised? And, uh, you know, you know, rent to own, call this 800 number, or is it, you know, the landlord approaching the tenant and saying, and then what happens? Is there a contract? And I guess sort of nuts and bolts, not asking about a specific example, sort of from a nuts and bolts basic basis, what does this kind of deal look like? And then why are they so bad for um, the tenants? As far as the nuts and bolts of the deal go, that's actually another thing that we're we're trying to get a handle on. Part of uh, the interview-based part of the research is where uh, we're asking people um, to share, uh, you know, a redacted copy uh, of, or well, basically, we're we're working with. I, I should also point out we're partnering with Fraser CDC uh, in uh, the uh, interviewing and recruitment. Uh, part of this, um, th- we're asking people to share uh, a copy of their contract with Fraser CDC, who can then redact it and share it with us um, to remove, you know, personal uh, information, that kind of thing. Um, and our the idea is to have um, uh, the fourth member of our research team that I'm very sorry I should have mentioned earlier, uh, Danny Keel uh, in the law school. Um, uh, essentially look over the terms of the contract Um, because, again, because these things generally don't get recorded uh, until the sale goes through, you know, know, years uh, after um, the purchase starts, we don't have any good systematic data on kind of the the terms, uh, sort of the the common terms, I guess. Um, Generally, though, um, it's generally though it is it, it functionally it essentially legally and in in terms of how um, uh, well legally it's essentially a rental until um, the sale goes through. It's a rental with some obligations on the landlord who is also the seller in this point in this case. Um, <laughs> As far as the actual uh, experience of the tenant um, slash buyer, uh, things we do know generally they're responsible for maintenance, uh, which is sort of one way that it's it's actually kind of worse than a rental because you know if, if you're renting at least the landlord is usually responsible for significant repairs. Um, but uh, you know on the other hand. Um, there are usually no more protections um, in the case of a missed payment than there would be uh, just for a rental uh, tenant, which in Tennessee is you know, virtually nothing, uh, essentially. Um, so are these are these um, 
are these, you know, and if you know, are they designed so that the the lender, the property owner who's a lender, knows good and well that the renter's never going to be able to afford it? Um, or is it a situation where, um, you know, the, the potential buyers just don't really have the capacity of the education to, um, to, you know, understand the terms. And I mean, these situations are complicated and every family situation is unique, but I'm just sort of, I'm trying to figure out whether they're really intentionally predatory or they're just like bad products that people shouldn't buy like a lemon car. Um, so, I mean, I, I, yes, they're intentionally predatory. Um, that, at least that, that, that's our, that's our working hypothesis. That is how they have historically, uh, operated. Um, yeah, that kind of uh, contract for deed sales actually used to be, um, in, uh, a, sort of back in, uh, uh, before uh, the era of the Fair Housing Act, uh, contract for deed sales were uh, part of, they were one of the only ways that a lot of uh, African-American families could uh, buy a house due to uh, redlining um, because they weren't able to get um, uh, uh, conventional mortgages, especially back before 1948, before uh, when when the racially restrictive uh, covenants that are on the deeds of a lot of uh, suburban and even um, in Memphis urban housing um, became unenforceable. Um, and in in that that era, um, yes, they were almost exclusively predatory. They were a big part of, um, you know, uh, what, uh, produced, uh, the deep, uh, racial, uh, housing inequalities, uh, in a lot of American cities, because, uh, exactly as you said, uh, you would have, uh, property owners who would, um, you know, essentially take advantage of, uh, the fact that they can, you know, collect payment after payment after payment, and then if the buyer, you know, misses even one, if the, you know, if they're, um, you know, a a week late on the next to last payment, even um, you can evict them and they end up with nothing, and you can essentially just recycle that house um, and you know sell quote unquote it all over again. Right. Ugh. That sound um, like sound like you know kind of the a lot of the what happened in the foreclosure crisis. Um, yeah, um, and so essentially with with evidence that this this model of home sales is getting interest from these large corporate investors that are becoming a much larger part of the the single family residential market than they ever have been before, both the rental market and, you know, sales. Um, We're, we're essentially trying to see, you know, uh, is this going to become a major uh, issue again? Has it already become a major issue again? 
Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Andrew Guthrie, who's Assistant Professor of City and Regional Planning at University of Memphis. And we're talking about land installment contracts, where, which are a particularly noxious kind of um, mortgage product, if you want to call them that, that's having you know, a negative impact on Memphis neighborhoods. And um, Andrew is researching that with some other partners at University of Memphis. So the, um, I mean, we have, I've definitely talked in the show before about, um, about the, all of the, you know, Wall Street firms, the private equity firms that came in to, you know, purchase lots of um, properties in Memphis, particularly single. In fact, we just recently, I had a show about why rents are so high, why rents have gone up so much. And of course, that's a factor in that. But I, but, and maybe this is a dumb question, but um, why, why are these corporations who, when you, when you think of, they're just dealing with, you know, thousands of properties, they're working with a local property manager. This seems sort of an inefficient product. Why, why are they interested in squeezing? And it doesn't seem like it would be efficient for them to try to squeeze an extra hundred dollars a month out of some of these, but maybe I'm naive. Um, I, I mean, as to exactly, uh, again, as to exactly how the numbers work out, we're kind of going to need to see some terms of contracts, uh, you know, before we can get to that. Um, but I, I mean, I think a, a, a couple uh, reasons these can be uh, attractive. Um, one, as you said, because you're sort of dangling that carrot in front of people of, you know, if you keep paying long enough, you'll own this. Uh, that allows you to charge a premium, um, uh, you know, essentially for no service. Um, and, and no goods unless the, the sale eventually does go through. Um, in some cases, uh, they are, um, uh, they may be trying to um, attract buyers, uh, or, or they, may, they may be trying to move homes off their balance sheets uh, that are um, at a price point that's difficult to get. Uh, a conventional mortgage uh, okay. for um, at at basically you can't. It, it's very very difficult to get a fifty thousand dollar home loan, um, especially because there are so many um, cash buyers. Well, uh, there's, regu- there's regulatory obstacles too, and that that as well. Yes. So, um, so the so the um, I mean, one of the discouraging. Uh, things about this is, um, you know, we've just over the decades, we've seen a, you know, one after another, these, um, you know, forms of housing discrimination that are negatively impacting, particularly African-American families and also neighborhoods. I mean, there was redlining, which, you know, we've certainly talked about. And then, you know, the foreclosure crisis, predatory lending, um, but I got to think this is, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit about, and I, and I realize again, you haven't, um, the research isn't done, but elaborate a little bit of, on, you know, the impact, um, on minority neighborhoods and presumably they're just hit a lot harder than, um, more affluent neighborhoods. 
Sure. Um, and it, uh, Ed, I mean, first of all, yes. Um, second of all, um, especially in Memphis, uh, that's the case because of how spatially segregated a city uh, we still are. Uh, we actually kind of have the worst of both worlds here, historically speaking, in that we have both uh, a very high degree of uh, spatial segregation based on race and based on class as well, but especially based on race, uh, as well as uh, the history of legal Jim Crow uh, segregation. Um, and that's actually somewhat unusual for a southern city. Southern cities usually have, uh, traditionally had less spatial segregation uh, than northern cities. Um, and we are very, that is very much not the case in Memphis. We're, we're segregated like you would expect um, a, a northeastern or midwestern uh, city to be spatially uh, speaking. And what that does is um, it concentrates the impacts of uh, predatory uh, housing models like this, both um, both racially because they're uh, they're essentially taking one way you can see these uh, types of transactions is that they're essentially taking advantage of um, you know the the racial inequalities, the economic inequalities in the housing market. Um, and using that as a way to make to squeeze more money out of people, um, it, it, it also, of course, concentrates the effects spatially. Um, so you'll get, you know, you'll probably, you know, I, I would be surprised if there are very many of these at all in East Memphis, um, just because uh, in East Memphis, home sales are mostly going to be. Um, Either just conventional mortgages, you know, private seller, private buyer, you know, kind of what everybody sort of thinks of when they think of a home sale, um, or they're going to be, you know, a cash sale to a large uh, investor that's you're looking to 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 rent the home, uh, just as a as again as a traditional rental. Um, so. Uh, I, you know, again, we don't know exactly what the findings are going to be, but we we would expect these to be very um, geographically concentrated in already marginalized, already disadvantaged neighborhoods, and just sort of compounding um, that uh, inequality. So, are you? Will you be? A, and maybe this is outside the scope of the research, but. Um, Will you be looking at all whether there be actually racial targeting? I mean, that was something for sh we saw during the um, the subprime loan uh, crisis of you know a decade ago or so, which is that you know there was racial targeting even in middle income neighborhoods like Whitehaven, for example, um, and um, you know when several banks conducted. Um, were active in that, that racial targeting. Um, and are you going to be looking at that at all? Or is that just, um, uh, is that sort of outside your, outside your scope? Uh, oh, certainly. I mean, yeah, part of, part of the interview process is going to be, um, you know, how did you end up buying a house you know, this way as opposed to 
through a conventional mortgage or as opposed to renting. Um, so if that, you know, um, uh, if that targeting is there, we'll certainly be looking, or, well, we are certainly looking for it. It, it, um, again, this hard is to, not hard results to prove. yet. This okay. is just sort of general, yep. um, yep. knowledge, but it, uh, honestly, from what we know of the housing market, it would surprise me if there isn't, uh, some degree of racial targeting. Yep. Yeah, well, that'll be it'll be interesting. Um, I'll be very interested to see um, to see the results of this. And it does sound like there's a challenge with the with the data. Um, and um, but I look forward to to hearing more about it. And I hope you know once you I don't know what your timetable is, but I hope at some point you know you'll come back and talk about the results. So last question, and I guess this is just something I want to. Say to the audience, and because I, I know you're you're not working directly with families from you know with a service perspective, but if people think they're um, if people think they're you know a victim of this kind of a scheme now, I guess um, you know necessary legal services and those traditional legal service organizations would be where they would go to, um, or the Mep- University of Memphis Law School Clinic, people like sure. that who can help them, um, setting outside of your research, there may be people listening who think, you know, I'm a victim of that. And um, how can I get help? So I just want to provide that information. Generally speaking, there really aren't much in the way of sort of services specifically targeted towards people who are you know, having trouble um, uh, in their housing because of a land installment contract. Again, because it's something that just really flies under the radar. Okay. So it's uh, not, so it's, it may be not a new problem, but it's new people are newly aware of it and they're not special. There aren't information brochures for people to, I hear you. So it's, um, yeah. okay. That's kind and of, it's, it's, I think it, it, it flies under the radar. Oh, sorry. I just said that's depressing too. That it's that that people. This is something that's actively going on and um, in our community, and um, and it's flying under the radar. So people aren't, you know, there aren't resources organized at the moment to to help. It sounds like. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's uh, I, that, that I think that's accurate, um, and I think partly it flies under the radar because it is a type of, uh, you know, predatory housing transaction, I guess, uh, to use a broad term, um, that really only affects um, um, marginalized, uh, politically disempowered uh, people. Um, You know, there were predatory mortgages uh, all up and down the income scale um, and across all races too, certainly concentrated at lower income levels, certainly concentrated um, among black borrowers in black neighborhoods. Um, but they, they, you know, bad mortgages affect everybody to some degree. Um, on the rental side of things, um, Almost everyone rents housing at some point uh, in their lives. Um, so, you know, um, pr- 
problem landlords have you know a, a sort of broad uh, effects, especially as you know um, you know more and more people are renting for more and more of their lives. Land installment contracts um, are something that uh, most of the people who um, you know again people with uh, political capital, people who are likely to vote, people who have, um, you know, uh, um, you know, a loud voice uh, in the public uh, sphere, um, are less affected by this, um, and as a result, uh, there's less policy um, being made uh, to deal with it. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM, and we've been talking about uh, land installment contracts, which is kind of a unique spin on traditional rent-to-own home purchases, or lack of a home purchase, as we've learned. Um, A lot of times at the end of this transaction, uh, there isn't a purchase, but... I've been talking to Andrew Guthrie, who's assistant professor of city and regional planning at University of Memphis. And uh, Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. And I really look forward to hearing um, some of the results of your research once it gets a little farther along. Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we uh, uh, stay tuned. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome to the second half of Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And this week we're talking about land installment contracts, which is a a rent-to-own type scheme that's becoming more prevalent in Memphis and really a, a predatory model, uh, like a lot of the kinds of lend pro- loan product we've seen in the past. And my guest for this half is our regular commentator, Austin Harrison, who's our go-to as, as an explainer on all things housing. And I like having you on, Austin, because you, I mean, you're good at putting things in con- local local issues in context, but you also uh, do a good job of sort of scanning what's happening on the national level. And so you always have good examples of, of what else we should be thinking about. Sometimes we're very you know, focused on what's happening here in Memphis, but of course people are being impacted, but, but it's good to know what's happening in other places as well. So, so I know you've listened to the first half of the show. I had Andrew Guthrie, who's assistant professor in the city and regional planning department of university of Memphis, talking about some research that he's doing about land installment contracts. So I know, you know, you, you know, quite a bit about the topic, but what did you think, what are you looking forward to learning about uh, when that research wraps up, well, it's it's really really exciting uh, to see this this effort and to learn of this research uh, by the the planning department at the University of Memphis. 
Um, <clears throat> I think what we're seeing, you know, and you and I have discussed this on past shows and past commentations around the the increase of, you know, that private equity out of town ownership and outside investors and, and to know, especially, I, I know anecdotally, uh, having sp- spoken with some CDCs, um, you know, the Heights CDC, for example, in growing Latinx populations, right? Uh, I, mean, I know that was something um, that's, you know, the 2020 census numbers have shown that's the fastest growing uh, ethnic group in, in the city of Memphis. And and so these sort of under the table predatory contracts tend to um, to impact, you know, obviously the historically the black community, but also Latinx community in Memphis. And so I think understanding uh, what that looks like on the ground. I think I'm excited about the mix they're using between some of the quantitative and more, you know, number based, but also complementing that with um, with work with the, the Fraser CDC, uh, with housing counselors and other other people on the ground that are working through these predatory situations um, when when they're brought to their attention. And so, uh, and I think you know, if if you if you're having trouble finding information on a, on a really important topic, right? That means that you're bringing light to, to an issue that um, there's a reason, right? That no one wants to know about it. And so I, I know it's, uh, it can be frustrating from a research standpoint, but I think that means the merits of that research and, the, and sort of in the idea of like scholar activism, right? Like doing the um, activist and organizing work while you're doing the research is, uh, is really exciting. So for all of those reasons, right? Just a few, I'm, I'm really excited. And then you've also seen really strong... Um, similar research in other cities. Uh, I've finished up my uh, doctorate at Georgia State and my mentor there, Dr. Dan Emmerbuck, has done a lot of work in Atlanta and Atlanta and Memphis have similar, you know, outside investment trends and similar trends since the Great Recession, since 2008 and subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, And so I think, again, having Memphis enter into this national conversation around a really uh, disgusting trend we're seeing uh that that's that goes like you know like dr guthrie mentioned that goes back to the 40s and 50s Um, well i want to ask you i want to ask you about the atlanta research in a minute um but the andrew did talk about how this was a this was a very common um sales tool during redlining when african-american potential buyers didn't have access to the traditional mortgage market but did it did it go away in the interviewing intervening years? I've only I've really only heard the last couple of years a lot of discussion about it here in Memphis. We you know we spend a lot of time talking about other kinds of predatory lending, but and I'm not saying I necessarily have my finger completely on the pulse, but um, it's only the last few years I've heard about these. But have they been? Have they been around forever, but just increased when when these uh, Wall Street firms came in and started buying a lot of single family housing? So uh, the, the research was conducted in uh, 2018. Um, it's actually called going back to the uh, th- this idea of an old old strategy, you know, coming back up. He, the title is actually called "Old Wine and Private Equity Bottles," right? So it's the same the same problem of of, uh, of, of, you know, contract for deeds and land installment contracts just manifesting itself with this new interest. Okay. That's interesting. So yeah. in other words, in other words, an old, an old ripoff that's being brought back. <laughs> um, anyway, go on. Yeah. You, you have to laugh. From, to, yeah. Like you said, it's really, it's, it's very, uh, very frustrating, uh, in lots of ways. And so, yeah, uh, this old ripoff that, that's now fueled by private equity. And, and they were looking at uh, one particular actor. Uh, there was a, a New York Times series of New York Times articles in 2016 that was looking at this group called Harbor Portfolio. And that's Harbor spelled B-O-U-R. 
Um, and they owned uh, right a, a little less. They were able to identify a little less than 100 properties that they owned in Fulton County outside of Atlanta and mapped um, the element. You know, there was a question asked at the early part around this racial targeting that you asked, you know, Dr. Guthrie. And they, you know, looked at where those, you know, some 80, 90 some odd properties were and with a racial background. And it is to the T, you know, where the... The, the black communities are in that area are exactly where almost all of those contract for deeds properties and contract for deeds actors were operating in. Um, and, and so I think it, it went to show how, again, there continues to be even 50, 60 years later from the initial um, creation of this ripoff, right? There continues to be a racial and ethnic targeting element to it. Um, and, and I think it also went to show sort of uh, their, their strategy from a, from an acquisition standpoint and the way that they were able to use, you know, when we talked a couple weeks ago about why rents were growing up so much, and we talked about, you know, how after the foreclosure crisis, you know, all these REO bank owned properties were just, you know, passing them off in the thousands to the private equity actors. REO so, meaning, you know, meaning properties that banks own because of foreclosure. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I, that's always helpful. Yeah, that's another reason why I love talking. I wish, you know, I, I think I've told you before. I, I wish I, I didn't ring the bell <laughs> so far. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, the bell's yeah. here <laughs> if I need it. Yeah. So, uh, so they, they, these private equity, you know, firms were were willing to purchase, you know, hundreds and thousands of properties at a time. Sometimes as many as tens of thousands across multiple cities. Um, and so there was there was a new. Uh, a new way to to really defer maintenance costs, right? I mean, you think about it, um, the, the economic reality from these private equity groups, if I can just cash flow the property and I can, you know, trick the person to thinking that they're on their way to home ownership, then the only other cost I would have from a property investment standpoint would be maintenance. And if, and if I can pass that off to the tenant in this predatory deal, then it allows them to just purchase more and more, right? And focus more on, um, you know, acquiring and, and cash flowing those properties and less on, on investing in them in any meaningful way. Um, and so I think it, it was sort of a, I guess you could say a, a match made in Hades, you know, um, in, in a lot of ways between that private equity capital and, and, um, and, and this old scheme that, you know, that, that was brought back to bear to, um, to, to build this out. Well, I want to ask you um, some, I want to talk for a minute about something that, uh, Andrew Guthrie and I talked about, and and maybe the, maybe this is unimportant in the greater scheme of things, but the, you know one thing that happened during the subprime crisis uh, of you know the mid two thousands was that you know there was um, you know targeting African American neighborhoods, and a lot of times home buyers who were being targeted ended up with more expensive mortgages. They, uh, you know, the lender made more money, um, but they, but they weren't necessarily set up to fail. They just got a more expensive product and, um, and a lot of times didn't know that. And I'm just sort of curious about the intent here. Are these, um, you know, and Andrew Guthrie, I think thought these were set up to fail um, as opposed to just kind of a bad deal that people can't, that people don't know are a bad deal and they go into them. And I don't even know if, if this question is making sense. It, it does. Yeah, no, because I, I, I've recognized the question you're referring in the, in the top of the, from the interview with Dr. Guthrie. Um, and and I, I, I would agree with, with Dr. Guthrie that I think this, this is intentional, right? I, I think there's, uh, you know, anytime, 
this is sort of logic we use with children, right? If, if a child is going to turn their back to you while they're doing something, right, you're always going to realize that maybe what they're doing isn't really <laughs> a good thing, right? It's like if you're, if you don't, if a five-year-old doesn't want you to watch while they're doing something, it, you got to be suspect about what's going on. And so it's the same idea with these contract for deeds. I think if this was just a, a bad deal and there wasn't any intentionality to it and there wasn't any um, sort of, you know, premeditation to it, then, then there wouldn't be so hard to track, right? That the challenge that uh, Dr. Guthrie and our research team is running into, I think, is a byproduct of the predatory action. It was the same way that you know it was difficult to track these predatory loans, right? We found proxies for it in the Housing Mortgage Disclosure Act, and you were able to identify mm-hmm. higher cost loans. But uh, that took you know years and years of, of building the research and, and building the methodologies there. And so I think we're still on that kind of cutting edge with a lot of this contractor deed stuff, but. Uh, but the intentionality is clear. And when you look at the data and you find properties that are owned by these actors in other cities and in Memphis, the you know the the Latinx and Black targeting, I think, is um, is is very it's 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 too it's too you know there's no such thing as a coincidence, right? It's too coincidental to to write off as a as well. A, and I didn't mean so much that, but but there's no there's no thought intention in the front end. There's no expectation that the person's going to buy the house. That's that, I guess that's my question, you know, because in going back to again to subprime lending, you know, subprime lending and then predatory, you know, a lot of the subprime loans, people expected they were going to pay them off. They were just going to make more money, but but they thought the family was probably going to pay it off. There was no, it was not like, oh, let's give them this bad mortgage and then we'll foreclose. You know, it was, and it seems like in this situation, there's not ever, there's not really. I mean, you can't look into the minds of the people that are offering these products. I realize that. But it seems like it's more of a no expectation this person's actually ever going to buy the house. Yes. Yeah. And and I've even heard anecdotally in Memphis um, some examples, uh, you know, again, with the high CDC, they've they've had, you know, these contract for deed leases and they've had, a, a, you know, a, you see that in the small print, the money you think you're putting to a down payment, the money you think you're putting to purchasing the home. Is actually, you know, staying in an escrow fund for the owner to do whatever they want to with it, right? And it's not actually. And so I think if if there was this follow through, right? If there was this honest intention that is just going to take longer, right? Again, acknowledging that even that system is, you know, because there there are a lot of really good rent to own schemes that are not set up this way. I, I think that's important to note as well. Not all rent to own programs are bad. There are a lot of a lot of CDCs in Memphis do a really good job of, of starting people and renters working with them to get their credit where it's at and setting them up on a 30-year fixed rate, really good mortgage where they can build wealth and build an asset and pass it down to their family. And, and I think that, um, that, that is out there. And so I think it's, uh, it's a matter of you know, understanding. And I think the, the legal assistance they have from uh, Professor Daniel Keel at the law school will really help, help out with this a lot. But it's about you know, building awareness and understanding for these deals. And when you're approached from a private market about a rent-to-own scheme, Really making sure you you understand the the nuts and bolts of that and and where where's my money going? How do I know it's going to a down payment? How do I know that? Uh, what's the transfer of the title going to look like? What's that timeline? Clarifying all the back end because I think in that ambiguity is where deals like this thrive. You know that that's a great point, Austin. We should and we should have made it earlier that there are good rent to own programs um, out there for first time homeowners. So if you're um, so. Yeah, just kind of quickly, like if you are, if your landlord approaches you about the, this kind of a program and you want help looking over the papers before you sign something, 
who's the who's the best person to call me if there is a community development corporation in your neighborhood for sure but um could you call Memphis Area Legal Services or Community Legal Center or those one of those resources that we have talked about here in the past? Yeah, I, I think that legal support's beneficial, but I, I would instruct anyone uh, because again, you know, these are alternate financing, predatory financing schemes, and United Housing, a great partner, uh, NeighborWorks partner in, in the city, one of you know strongest citywide CDC, I think, in country. Right, they get a lot of national recognition. Re- really well-run organization. They have a robust housing counseling system. And then they also, which other CDCs have, but they also have this, you know, specific funds for, you know, mortgage relief and, and, and predatory actors and have people that are experienced with knowing, okay, this is kind of fishy, right? Even if I don't, even if I don't know it's a land installment, I can read through the deed and, and I can, and a lot of those funds are there where, you know, whereas Mal's has, you know, restricted, um, that they have a specific income bracket that they can work with, uh, but the CLC may be another really good option. But I, I would start with, with, with United and, and, and working with them get you know access to the law school or, or the legal or mouths or other groups. So. Okay. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're talking to regular commentator Austin Harrison. We're talking about land installment contracts. So Austin, um, that's good information. So I guess last question because uh, you and I frequently talk about policy, potential policy changes that can address uh, some of the situations we discuss on the show. First, let me, before I get into the details, first, let me just step back and say, I do acknowledge the, and agree with Dr. Guthrie, the disconnect between, you know, we, we live this a lot, you know, the, the deals like this that are impacting the grassroots, impacting the people in the neighborhoods, don't always rise to the level of, of, of policy you know, priorities. Um, and so w- where do we kind of go from there? And, and to me, you know, and I know I'm probably speaking in good company here, but uh, as a community developer and, and, you know, with a community organizing background, I think community organizing and activism is always the best way to, to build up the, the people power and, and raise those issues that are impacting so many folks to a higher level. And so there was an example of a group I used to uh, work with. I interned a little bit uh, before grad school in, in Youngstown, Ohio. For those that don't know, this is a uh, Rust Belt City, um, maybe about a hour, hour and a half uh, northeast of Cleveland, northeast Ohio. Um, and the geography is important because what they did is they identified one of the other big contract for deed, land installment contract groups called Vision Properties, and worked with um, worked with uh, Acorn and, and other national organizing groups to to create um, a campaign around. Uh, contract for deeds that also, you know, worked in Pittsburgh and other cities, but they, they took a bus full of tenants who were in these land installment contract for deeds deals and drove them from Northeast Ohio and Western Pennsylvania down to South Carolina, the, the, at the headquarters of vision properties, you know, this group that was one of the known land installment contracts and stood outside of their offices with big signs and bullhorns and demanded something be done about this. And through that activism and action, we're able to bring vision properties to the table uh, to negotiate, you know, a disposition and a lawsuit and, and really hold them accountable for what they've been doing um, shamefully to, to all of these families and had the tenants there themselves, right? The people who were impacted by this were driving this effort and were working with, with these CDCs to do it. And so I think though that policy disconnect is there, I think we can look to you know, good old fashioned organizing and activism as, as a way to um, to have direct action towards and, and put it in the face of, of these owners. Because a lot of times when the private equity stuff, you could be paying money to a pension fund and not realizing that they, that pension fund is, is going around and purchasing property and, and 
you know, Memphis and other cities across the country and, and, you know, basically perpetuating some of these um, predatory rental or, or contract for deeds or other, other schemes out there. And so there's, there's this immediate disconnect of, you know, out of sight, out of mind, if it's behind all these shell corporations, it's hard to make it a policy priority. You know, Dr. Guthrie talked a lot about that at the top. Um, but I think there's an example of this is the way you can make it meaningful and, and, and put it in, in the, in the face of, of the folks that are either explicitly or implicitly involved in it and say, this is, this isn't right. And this is what we can do about it. And I think in actions like this, that's the, a great place to start to, to get to those discussions of policy and intervention. Well, are there, there, um, even though there's still a lot of predatory lending, you know, redlining eventually, you know, the fact that redlining existed and, and similar forms of lending discrimination at that time uh, led to, you know, federal policy, you know, the fair lending regulations and then Community Reinvestment Act regulations. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, those have been watered down, but those are real protections. Not that people don't go around the system because they do, but those are real protections. And a lot of things that are not legal now were at one time. And it seems to me uh, that there should be some kind of regular, and maybe because these aren't always recorded, it's difficult to enforce, but it seems like these kind of transactions should not be legal. I'm probably pointing out the obvious, but um, are there ways to make these, you know, land installment contracts that do not meet these seven criteria to make them illegal? Definitely. Yeah, I, I think I think there is a lot of... Um there's, there's opportunities for policy intervention uh, at the local level with, with how we record these deeds, right? So if, if there is a, a deed agreement or purchase agreement recorded, um, you know, I think there are ways on, on the front end to, to identify and prevent this. I think there are ways on the back end uh, to, to, to create a system that can identify, you know, these actions better and, and come to remedies. And then there's been a, a big movement um, just across the board with predatory financial schemes, you know, from payday loans to subprime mortgages to land installment contracts. And, and I think there, there's a lot of opportunity to, um, to, to have some of those, you know, maybe, maybe it's going through the federal reserve, maybe it's, you know, looking at, uh, financing strategies. There's a group, um, the, the Pew charitable trust, their home finance researcher, uh, Tara Roche spoke at the housing summit last week and, and was talking about, you know, an effort they're leading, uh, around what they're just naming broadly, like alternative, you know, uh, home financing, and, and I think they're creating and doing policy scans all across the country. And so I think they're, that's another you know, uh, research report I'm excited to read because I think that'll allow us to, to see what's possible at the local level, hopefully. Uh, hopefully it's, a, it's at the county because I think we all know the political realities of, of doing something uh, as progressive as this at the state level. Um, so uh, Yeah, I'll, we'll be long gone before that ever happens. <laughs> Sorry to be such a pessimist. Okay, well, on that note, we're out of time. So you've been listening to WYXR 91.7 FM, and the show is Memphis Metropolis. I'm Emily Trenum, and I'm the host of the show. And my guest has been Austin Harrison, a regular commentator on All Matters Housing. So, Austin, thanks for coming back on the show. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. 
Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.